listening to the Bill Sunday School Podcast. Turn in your Bible to 2 Timothy 3, uh, we're going to read 3, 14 through 17. And we're kind of in this, uh, been starting this habit of not putting the scripture on the screen so that it kind of makes you or forces you to turn to it in your own book. And we provide Bibles on, uh, every table should have at least one Bible. Or maybe you brought your cell phone and it has a Bible program in it. I just think there's something good about turning to scripture and reading it for yourself and seeing it and uh, going, you know, through it. And getting into that habit. So 2 Timothy, not 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 17. It says something like this. This is going to be about Scripture and what Scripture it is. And so he says, uh, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know, um, because you know those from whom you've learned it. Verse 15, and, and how it is from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. So the Holy Scriptures are to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And then a very famous verse, which is 2 Timothy 3.16, which says, All Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness, so the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So let's pray this morning. God, we do thank you for, for the Bible, for, for the book we call Scripture, all of these books put together and, and bound, and so we hold it as, as Scripture, we hold it as your words to us. Father, thank you for this gift. We, let us um, study it today, let us open it up, and um, be, be aware of the things that you are showing us and teaching us through your Scripture. God, we praise you, we love you this morning. And everybody screamed! Amen. Well, uh, yeah, welcome to Mill Sunday School. This is the Mill Sunday School, and um, uh, there we are, Mill Sunday School. Uh, we are talking about Bible myth-busting today, which has, of course, a relation to one of my favorite shows in the entire world. Uh, I don't watch too much TV. Uh, we don't have a TV at our house, but it seems like whenever my wife and I have been on vacation the last couple years, they're always doing like a marathon of the MythBusters. Um, does anybody else like this show? It's, yes, okay, good. It's kind of a nerd show. Uh, Adam Savage and Jamie Heineman tests, of course, myths. If you've been living under a rock and if you've never seen this show since it started in 2003, um, they basically go out and, and uh, test a myth that we hear about, and they test them, and they usually bust them. However, not always. Sometimes they confirm that they're true, but they usually bust them. Like this myth that they tested not too long ago, a simple uh, tissue box stored in the backboard of a car can move with sufficient force to kill a person during a crash. So, like, your mom's like, don't put anything on that back window, kids, because it might kill you if we got in an accident. And so you have a tissue box there. So they went out, the, these guys, Jamie Heineman is on the right with the big uh, mustache thing, and Adam is on the, uh, the left with the glasses. And um, they tested the myth that if this is moving fast enough, that it could kill you um, if it was in a crash and it was, like, bouncing around and hit you in, like, the this head or something, that this could kill you. And they figured out, no, it really can't kill you because, like, how fast are you moving in a car? Maybe, you know, at the fastest, like 80, 100 miles per hour, you get into, like, a horrible crash and this box would come flying at you at 100 miles per hour. It may hurt. It may give you a bruise that you don't want, but it's not going to kill you. And so does anybody want me to throw this at them? Really hard? All right. <laughs> See, it almost killed him. 
So anyways, um, so they tested that myth, and of course it was, everybody scream, busted. Um, and so they test, and they, uh, they test other myths sometimes um, that they confirm, and they're like, oh, th- this is actually a confirmable myth. Like, um, let's see, confirmed myth, it, it's possible to safely stop an out-of-control car by pulling in front of it with another car to slow it down. So if you're like on a hill going down, and there's like a car next to you, and they're all like screaming and holding up signs saying, our brakes are out, and our transmission's out, and our emergency brake is out, help! You can, like, go in front of them and use your brakes to slow them down. So they confirmed that that actually isn't even a myth. It's true. Um, And so they thought it was a myth, or somebody thought it was a myth. And so they confirmed the myth. And then sometimes they have plausible myths. Um, I really like this one. I saw the episode on YouTube um, where where it says, While escaping prison, you could climb down a wall using a rope made of toilet paper. Did anyone see this one? Of course you did. And so they took toilet paper, they, they like twisted it, and then they braided it together. And one of the guys, uh, Tori, one of the younger white guys, used it, like threw it out off a building and climbed down like three stories using this rope that he made out of toilet paper. Of course, he was also safety harnessed, and he got all the way down, um, kind of, he kind of slipped. And so that's why they said it was plausible. And then at the very end, he was like hanging from it. Then the rope snapped. And so uh, they, they said, this myth is plausible. Like you probably could, you know, if you wanted to really escape a prison and uh, put your life on literally a toilet paper rope, um, it's plausible that you could uh, do this. So that's the Mythbuster. So this month, um, we are going to be Bible myth-busting. How fun does that sound? Yeah, I, I, I've been excited for this uh, topic in this month for a little while. And um, so we're going to begin with um, some silly myths, just myths. Uh, I wanted to begin the, the month with like myths of, about the Bible that you may have heard. I think I have like five or six of them. And then uh, we're going to move towards more serious things. These first things are just kind of silly and it's like, oh, I didn't know that. I thought that was true, but oh, I guess it's a myth. But it really doesn't have any huge application to your life or what the Bible is. But we're going to get there. This, this Today and this month, we're going to get to harder passages, confusing passages of Scripture, um, potentially look at errors and misconceptions and these words that we bring to the table and um, are sometimes very confused about. And we, we're like, wait, no, the Bible doesn't have errors in it. The Bible doesn't have um, uh, co- things that are confusing or contradictions when it turns out, well, maybe there is some confusing, hard, interesting passages of the Bible that would require us to look at. So, um, are you ready for some myths? All right, let's bust some. So you've probably heard this one before. Have you heard this? The Bible says God helps those that help themselves. Have you heard this before? Has anybody ever said that? Like your grandma is like, you're like laying on the floor like, oh, okay, help me. It's like, well, get up because God helps those that help themselves. Or something like that. Um, and so, um, but it doesn't say that. And so if you go to something called a concordance, I like to go to BibleGateway.com. It used to be that if you had a concordance, it was like this huge, big book on your bookshelf. And if you wanted to know where a certain passage was, you had to go reference that book and look it up. But nowadays, I think, uh, how many of you have a Bible on your phone or iPod or, and so, so those programs, there's probably a program within the program that is a concordance. And so if you wanted to look up a passage, you could just type in the word and then it shows all the times which that word is used. And so sometimes people email me like, um, that I just know where passages are off the top of my head. They're like, hey, Joe, where's that passage that says, you know, for, if it's by grace you've been saved through faith, where's that at? And I'll email them back because I'll look at the concordance and I'll just type in those words and it'll say, some of you probably know where that passage is. Anybody? 
I hear it, yeah, Ephesians uh, 2.8, so that's, that's where that passage is. But if you didn't know that off the top of your head, that's what the concordance is for. And so if you look up, God helps those that help themselves, and you, and you put that into the concordance, hit enter, you will find that it's not in the Bible, right? All right, so that myth is, everybody yell it. Busted. <laughs> um, so here's another myth. The Bible says Adam and Eve ate an apple, right? That's our image, like the, uh, what is it, the third chapter in Genesis. Uh, Adam and Eve are tempted to eat the apple, but it doesn't actually say apple. It says, it says fruit, and you can go check it out if you want, Genesis 3, 6. So we're not sure if it's an apple or a kumquat or an orange. We just don't know what it was, but we do know that it was a fruit, and so that's a myth of the Bible. So that myth is, everybody... Busted. All right, here's another one. This one has more of an application, maybe. Maybe you've heard this one uh, before. Um, in fact, Brady is, is talking about hell today in the main service. If you go over to the 11 o'clock service, Brady's talking about uh, Luke 16, which has the context of Lazarus and the rich man going to Hades. And so he's going to talk a little bit about hell. But here's the myth that Jesus, and maybe you've heard this before. Maybe a preacher has said this and you're like, oh, cool, sweet. I guess that's true. But it's not. Jesus spoke more on hell than heaven. That's a myth. That's not true. If you type in the word hell in the concordance, you'll get like 17 or so. Um, uh, uses of the word hell, and you could type in like maybe other things that might be related to that, and you'll get about maybe 30 times where Jesus spoke about hell or weeping, gnashing of teeth, the fire. Um, uh, so about 30-ish times. If you type in the word heaven into your concordance, hit enter, you'll get over 100. If you type in salvation, you'll get tons. If you type in uh, eternal life or kingdom, you will get lots and lots of times where Jesus speaks about these things. And so it's actually false. This myth is, everybody... <laughs> this is fun. All right, uh, just a couple more. Um, another one about hell. The Bible describes the devil with a pitchfork in hell. That's kind of the image that maybe you have of hell. There's a lot of myths concerning heaven and hell and what those places will actually be like. But if you have an image of the devil with like a big pitchfork, like poking people down there, um, that, that's not really what the Bible says. In fact, uh, if you read Matthew 3.12, you will see that Jesus is the one with the pitchfork separating the wheat from the chaff. And so I'm not sure where the image of the devil having the pitchfork comes from, but if you dress up like a devil for Halloween, don't have a pitchfork because it's Jesus with a pitchfork, not the devil. So that myth is, everybody? Busted. All right, I think uh, one or so more. Uh, This one, uh, my youth pastor told me this one when I was in high school. Uh, Women have one more rib than men. Raise your hand if you've heard this one before. Anybody? Okay, so look around. Like, this is like a possible myth. And you're like, yeah, it's true. My youth pastor said that. And so the the idea is that Genesis 2.21 says, man fell into a deep sleep. God took a rib and then made woman out of that rib. So men should have one less rib. Women should have one more rib. And so my youth pastor told me that. I didn't think anything of it. Just believed him, of course, because he's my youth pastor. Until later, until I went to college, I was in an anatomy class. And the teacher was like, how many of you guys think that uh, men have more, uh, one more rib than women. And like me, of course, I was just like, yeah. Um, and then like, w- <laughs> uh, like two other people were like, yeah, I've heard that before. And then he's like, oh, you're so silly. Um, you guys have an extra assignment when we have to uh, do the cadavers. And I was just like, wait, what? And so I, I, had, I researched it, found out that men and women have 12 pairs of ribs. That, that's a myth that, that women have one more rib than men. Sad. Maybe. I don't know. It's a myth. Anyways, that one is... Everybody? (laughs) 
Uh, I think this might be the last one. Uh, the Bible says that there were three wise men that visited baby Jesus. So this is kind of a Christmas myth. You know, you have the little manger scene. You have the three wise men, the magi. You have a bunch of shepherds. You have the Mary and, and Joseph and baby Jesus there. And, of course, the wise men each bring their own gift, at least uh, so the myth goes. That, uh, what are the three gifts? Myrrh, frankincense, frankincense myrrh. And gold, uh, the three gifts. So we assume that, oh, maybe there was three of them there. But it, the Bible doesn't really say how many of them there are. In fact, in the Eastern world, the, the assumption was that there was 12 of them that came and that they just had three gifts. So um, it's just a matter of reading the text, I think. So that myth is busted. All right, that was the last one. So the main point today before we get into where we're going, and hopefully these were just kind of silly examples for you um, that really don't, you know— no one is going to leave here like, uh, I, don't, I don't think that any of those myths that I just busted leave here totally confused and like throwing the Bible in the trash because women really do, don't have one more rib than men do. Those are just kind of silly examples. But we are going to go somewhere today, take us more into a serious uh, road of, of finding Bible questions and answers and hard passages. But the main point is that we need to read the book we so deeply believe in. I think as Christians, you know, the Bibles are everywhere. They're on our phone, they're on our computer, they're on the tables that you maybe you brought one that's in your purse, it's in your fanny pack, whatever the heck you put your Bible in. Um, It's easy. You probably have three or four of them at home. I have like 10 of them in my office, different translations, Greek ones, Hebrew ones, NIV ones, message ones. And so it's it's so easy for us in our age to have a Bible. And yet so many of us, uh, myself included, would would fall into this category of maybe saying that we don't read it as much as we should or as much as we need to, and maybe believing myths um, or, or things about the Bible that aren't true because we haven't spent the time reading it. So that's kind of the, the point of today and where we're going in the Mill Sunday School. But before we go there, um, just a few announcements. If you're new to the Mill Sunday School, welcome. We're glad that you're here. Uh, on all the tables are a couple of visitor cards that says Mill Sunday School on it that has uh, places for you to fill out information. Give us your email if you want to. We'll put you on our email list. We won't take advantage of it. But we will give you a CD, a worship CD from The Mill. That's our main college and 20-somethings ministry on Friday nights. It's a worship CD. So just fill that out. Bring it to the people as you're leaving. If you have any comments or or if you want to talk to somebody about small groups or other things that we do around here, they can answer those questions. So um, that's what that card is for. Um, Anybody going to the Mill Fall Retreat? Yes. Yes, me too. Um, so the Milfar Retreat is in like 20 days. Is today the 2nd? So the, the Milfar Retreat is on the 21st of this month, so it's less than 20 days away. Um, it is a time for us as the Mill to go in the mountains. We're going to go to Winter Park, Colorado. We are going to have a few services like the Mill on a Friday night. We are going to have tons of free time, tons of uh, time of, of getting to know each other and eating good food and hanging out at this awesome camp. And so if you're interested in that, go to, do, go to our website, click on Retreat, read about it. The topic this year is the people of God. So we're going to talk about what it means to be a person or a people of God. And so I uh, hope that you can make it. Um, if you want more information as you leave, you could talk to the people as you leave. Uh, they have a little card back there. They'll give it to you, uh, give you a link to register and ask any questions you want. So uh, those are your announcements. Everybody cool? All right. I mean, you know I'm cool, so (laughs) thank you, the three of you that laughed. Anyways, um, let's talk about the Bible, and let's talk about 
Uh, the first point, if you're taking notes, I kind of always try to give you notes so you can see right off the uh, beginning of where we're going and where we've been. But we're going to talk right now about a critical study of the Bible, which is different than just doing a study, uh, a Bible study, or a devo, if, you're, if you do a morning devotional or evening devotional. Um, it, that, that, that's probably pretty common among, in the Christian world, to open up your Bible, to study, to pray through it, to read it, to maybe study the Bible, um, to think about things that you're reading. That's all good. But maybe if you've never um, studied the Bible critically, this would be something different than doing a, a devo. And so if you've never been to Bible school or seminary, or if you haven't been coming to the Mill Sunday School as, as often as maybe some other people, maybe you have never studied the Bible Critically, And so what we're going to do today is look at the Bible almost with critical eyes saying, okay, what is this book? How does it work? We're going to dive into all this month hard, interesting, misunderstood passages of Scripture, which may be something that you avoid in your natural devotional life as reading the Bible. And it's, it's maybe this direction that we're going is a direction you haven't been before. It, it might surprise you or shock you today. Um, and, and we're going to spend the rest of this month clearing up some of this confusion and misunderstandings of the Bible. But uh, what we're doing in here this month is kind of a critical study of the Bible. That's point number one of where we're going. And if you've never studied the Bible critically, um, like I hadn't before I got to seminary, then maybe this analogy will help you because it's, an, it's a very short, quick analogy that uh, one of my professors told me before we started critically studying the Bible. And in seminary, you study the Greek, you study the Hebrew, you dive into passages that are uh, sometimes mistranslated or misunderstood. Um, and so before we do that, I, I was going to give you an analogy of a garden. So here's an English garden. And the analogy goes something like this, so stay with me, that, that if you are into gardening, anybody into gardening? It's probably not the, you, there's like three of you. Okay, sweet. I kind of am. Um, I, I was a biology undergrad and with an emphasis on botany, study of plants. And I, uh, you'll probably make fun of me later, but I used to work at a flower shop um, taking, I know, it's hilarious. Um, so <laughs> I took care of the flowers there. Um, and so I was interested in plants. I have a garden nowadays, and so I'm, I guess gardening could be one of my hobbies, I guess. And, and the, this analogy goes like this, that if you fall in love with gardening, especially flower gardening, then what you fall in love with this idea that you're creating something, that you are um, planting plants, and of course you didn't create them, God created them, and that when the plants are full grown and you have a garden and you sit back and look at it, you're filled with awe, like, wow, this is beautiful, God's creation, it's, there's order and structure here, and it's beautiful. And this bigger idea, maybe that the reason why you get into gardening is this love for um, gardening where you, you can just appreciate God's creation and the beauty of the flowers. And maybe um, in the same way, we appreciate, we love the Bible. We sit back and we, we read Psalms. We pray through scripture. We enjoy opening our Bible in, in the morning or in the evening and studying it, reading passages. And you fall in love with God and reading the Bible, maybe in the same way that a garden hobbyist would fall in love with gardening and, and enjoying the flowers that are there. And so what we're about to do is we're about to get our hands dirty. We're about to 
um, you know, look at the weeds and pull weeds this morning, uh, you know, figuratively in the Bible. We're about to study, you know, maybe the tools and get familiar with the tools that are in the tool shed that you have to have if you are a gardener and have a big garden. And so maybe um, the, this bigger idea is that we, we have to come back to this month and maybe today, this idea that I will hopefully remind you of, of enjoying the beauty of, of the truth that's in the Bible, enjoying the beauty of the creation and enjoying your garden, even though a lot of gardening is getting your hands dirty and weeding that garden and pulling up weeds and working with the tools, buying new tools, going to Home Depot, picking up stuff, planting out your garden. A, a lot of gardening is, is, is just that, getting your hands dirty. And so today, as we look at the Bible critically, which, which maybe for some of you has been the, is, will be the first time you've ever thought about the Bible as, as uh, looking at it critically, um, we're going to get our hands dirty. We're going to look at the weeds today. We're going to think about the tools that we have to have to, to till the earth and to get into this uh, figurative garden, which is the Bible. But at the end of the day, hopefully literally or figuratively end of this message, the end of this month, we will look back at this idea of, of, of Scripture and the beauty that's in it and the truth that God has given us in this Bible um, and, and be overtaken by that and not overtaken by our dirty hands or the weeds or the tools we have to get familiar with. So that's this bigger idea. That's this analogy that helped me many years ago when I started seminary as I first studied the Bible critically. And so our critical study of the Bible is going to take us to two important words that I think we need to talk about and know about. And these two words are words uh, maybe you've heard before. If you've been around church, they're pretty important words. They're, they're words that are that will find themselves in the doctrine of your church. If you, you know, if you're asking someone about the doctrine, maybe that you'll be asked about the Bible, what you think about the Bible, and maybe you'll hear these words like, "We believe the Bible is inerrant. We believe the Bible is infallible." And and these two words sometimes go hand in hand. Um, I think there's a lot of confusion over, especially the first word, inerrant. Um, and so we'll talk about that. But literally, what's the word inerrant mean? Do you know? Yeah, just without error. And so that's what it literally means. And, and I, think there's, I think Christians would agree that, oh yeah, the Bible's without error. But then there's spectrums of, of how the Bible can be without error. And so on one side, maybe I'll go over here. And so on one side, there's this idea that inerrancy just means that the Bible doesn't uh, teach what is false. The Bible's true and that the stories are true. God is true. The Bible's true. It's, it's without error. It doesn't err. It doesn't deceive. The Bible speaks of what is true. And so that's what you mean, or some groups of Christians mean, when they just say the word er- inerrant. Yeah, the Bible's without error. It doesn't err. It doesn't teach lies. The Bible's true. God's real. The Bible's uh, real, etc. So that's what they mean. And then maybe on this other side, um, of, of this definition of what inerrancy means. It are groups of Christians that would say, yeah, the Bible is all that, plus the Bible is without error of any kind. There, every translation is perfect. Um, the Greek and the Hebrew, the original manuscripts, those would be perfect. And so the Bible has no inconsistencies, has no errors of any kind, historical, scientific inconsistencies. The Bible is absolutely perfect. Um, and that's what inerrancy means. And then maybe there's even another group that would be uh, maybe over here, or maybe, I don't know where exactly they'd be, but um, like there's, I live in Manitou, and there's a church a couple doors down, and um, it's an independent, uh, fundamentalist, Southern Baptist church, um, and I met with the pastor, and he's he's a really cool guy, and I, I would never, you know, I, I try not to say bad things about other groups of Christians, but th- their differences, 
um, when it comes to inerrancy, I think would be very clear with our, with, like with what versions we use. We're, I think we're, you know, if I asked to, to show of hands, I th- you know, some of you probably have the NIV, some of you have the NASB, some of you have, have other translations. Well, this particular church, and maybe you know churches like this, they are King James Version only church. And so when they use the word inerrancy, um, uh, either this church or other churches, I'm not picking on any one church now, but I'm just saying like a King James Version only church, when they use the word inerrant, they mean the King James Version. They would say, oh, the NIV, that that has problems and errors in it. The NASB, that has problems and errors. But you really need to read the King James Version only because that's the inspired version. That's the inerrant version. Other versions have errors. Has anybody been to a church or no church like that? Yeah, I mean, they're, they're Christians. They're, we love them. They love us. We're in the same, you know, we hold hands at the end of the day figuratively and say we all believe in Jesus. And so it's fine. It's just differences of what this word inerrant means. Um, and then, so that, so is anybody confused about what this word actually means? Yeah, me too. And so it, it has lots of different meanings in lots of different denominations or different Christian groups. But the, the gist is that it's without error. And so whether you specifically mean that it's without error of any kind or whether you just mean that the Bible is true, it doesn't err in teaching what is true, that, that there's, there's debate over what this word means. There, I think there's less debate over this word, um, infallible, which comes from the Latin word follow, which means to deceive, to trick, to cheat, to disappoint. And we would say that the Bible doesn't do those things. The Bible, uh, I, I've just put up the words, uh, does not deceive. And so I think um, this word is, is more standard for what it means. There's not as much debate over what the word infallible means. It just means that the Bible is true. It doesn't trick. It doesn't deceive. It doesn't teach um, untrue doctrine. Um, it, it, it doesn't deceive. And so hopefully that term is pretty clear to you right now. And so I want to bring up a discussion. So I, I think Sunday school is a time where we can discuss things. I think it's important to communicate with each other, to listen to each other's ideas, to think about those things. And so this might be opening a can of worms, but what better place to do that, right? I mean, we're talking about this idea of the garden and soil, and you need worms in the soil, right? Going back to the analogy. So what better place to open a can of worms uh, with this question? So uh, if you're at a smaller table, you could join another table, just jump right in, uh, and everybody seems to be pretty nice around here. So um, the, the question is this, does the Bible have any errors or inconsistencies in it. So like any error of any kind, if you believe the Bible is inerrant, does that mean that it doesn't have any scientific, historical, translational errors in it? Or can we find some maybe inconsistencies or errors within the text of Scripture? Um, I think just go around and say, yeah, you think it does, or no, you think it doesn't. So that's the discussion question. I'll give you like three minutes to discuss it. Ready? Get set. Discuss. All right, well, um, we'll kind of come back to this question in, in a minute, but um, just by show of hands, sorry if I'm interrupting. I, I just said discussion's important, now I'm interrupting you, but we'll have another discussion in, in a little bit because um, I think they're so important. But by, raise, by a show of hands, how many of you would say um, the Bible may have small errors, or if you wanted to call them that, or inconsistencies, how many of you would say, yeah, maybe? How many of you would say, no, it, it really doesn't. It's perfect. It's, it is what it is. And so, there, yeah, there's, there's groups of people. Um, there, if we're all Christians in here, and I don't want to assume that we all are, maybe you're visiting, and that's, that's perfectly fine, but if I just assume that we're all Christians in here, there's different perspectives of what that word inerrancy means. And so, 
we're, we're going to talk about some of those things, and I've have not even called them um, errors or inconsistencies. I've just called them confusing passages because there's Christians on both perspectives of, yes, there are small errors, or no, there are not small errors or inconsistencies. And so I've just labeled this uh, th- these four points, if you see them on the notes, as types of confusing passages. And these may, um, and so I want to preface this once again, going back to the garden analogy, hopefully that will help you, that right now we're about to get our hands really dirty. We're about to critically study the Bible. And if you've never done that before, some of the things that I'm about to show you may trouble you. Um, You may have never seen these things in in the context of the Bible before, and they they may trouble you. And so if you leave here troubled today, know that the rest of this month we are going to be talking, going back over um, these four types, and these are just the the types that I thought of. This isn't like an extensive list, but these are the four types of confusing passages that I've found in Scripture, and we're going to be talking about those things for the rest of this month. So, if, if we talk about something that really confuses you or irks you, know that we'll go back to this topic um, and talk about this more in detail this month. The, the, today's lesson is to just kind of bring up questions, not so much answers. So that's, that's kind of where we're going. The first type of confusing passage is potentially translational issues or confusion. And I think the translational is a word, right? What I mean by that is uh, when, when you're translating the Bible, um, there's some things in the Bible that may get translated differently, or this comes into question with maybe hermeneutics. This comes into, brings things into question like early manuscripts and things like that. Um, for, for instance, um, I thought this one was pretty interesting. Some of you may not have this verse in your Bible. Look at your Bible and see if your Bible has Matthew 17, 21 in it. Which is a pretty interesting thing, because some of your Bibles won't have this verse. It'll go right from Matthew 17, 20, right to Matthew 17, 22. And you're like, wait a minute, I know how to count. There's a verse missing. Where the heck is Matthew 17, 21? Raise your hand if your Bible has Matthew 17, 21. Okay? Raise your hand if your Bible does not have Matthew 17, 21. And so I think if you have a King James Version or a New King James Version, it has Matthew 17, 21. But if you have a, a newer version like the NIV, the NASB, then that verse is just missing, which is pretty wild, don't you think? You're like, wait, where is this verse? It's just missing. And there's probably a note on it that goes down to the bottom of your page and says something like, like what? Does it say, earliest manuscripts don't have that verse. It it potentially was added in later. Other gospels have that verse in it. And so maybe someone uh, uh, copying it, scribes, put it in, but it's probably, it was probably put in later. So therefore, uh, newer translations have realized this, that the earlier manuscripts, and we keep finding, not not like every day or anything, but we we have found and, and keep finding older artifacts and manuscripts. And so we found that the earliest manuscripts don't have this, that verse in it. So it's probably not supposed to be in there. It was added later. And so if you have a translation that took it out, that's why. Has anybody ever seen things like that before? And it, it's not like the, the Bible is trying to hide those things from you. Flip to any other page in the Bible and you will probably notice that at the bottom of the page or at the side, or if you, if you don't have a travel Bible or a very small compact Bible, you will probably have these translational notes in your page. Like 
is everyone seeing what I'm, just flip around, you'll see these notes at the bottom of the page that say, oh, this word could be this word, or in the Greek it actually says this, or in the Hebrew it might say this, or if you flip to the Old Testament, it's like some passages in the Septuagint say this instead of that. These are translational notes that just add to the text and and give us clarity as to why translators have, have chosen the words they have or included or not included some passages. One of the biggest, um, maybe, passages that uh, is confusing like this is uh, a passage that you, are the story that you're probably familiar with. It's in John chapter 8. If you turn to John chapter 8, there's probably a note right before John chapter 8. It's John 7, is it 53? There's probably a note of some sort in your Bible that may be really confusing. And it's confusing because it has these translational or manuscript issues. Um, and so it says something like, so if you turn to John chapter 8, something, do you see this note in there? Something like uh, the earliest manuscripts don't have John 7:53 through 8:11, which is basically the story of the woman caught in adultery. And then Jesus finds her, uh, that they bring her to Jesus. Jesus writes something on the ground and then says, whoever uh, is without sin, cast the first stone. And they all leave. Do you know that story? Very popular story. You've probably heard sermons on it. You've probably read it before. And maybe you've never seen that note that, that says the earliest manuscripts don't have this passage. And so there's, there's textual criticism, that's what it's called, um, about this passage, whether it either should be included or shouldn't be included. Uh, maybe uh, we will find earlier manuscripts that have this passage, but as of right now, the earliest manuscripts that we have don't have this passage in it. And so we've included it, almost every translation includes it, but usually includes it with a small note saying, This passage isn't found in the earliest manuscripts, and that's confusing. Is that confusing to anybody else besides me? Yeah, it's confusing. If you've never seen that before, if you've never looked intentionally at these translational notes at the bottom of the pages of the Bible, then maybe you're confused right now. But just to give clarity, we will talk about this in full detail um, later on this month and talk about how these translational issues and how manuscripts work and, and why this is confusing and why these confusing things are in the Bible. So just ra- raising questions right now, not so much answering them, but, uh, but believe me, the, the bigger point is that uh, we don't have anything to worry about these passages. They're, 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 they're few and very far in between. Um, and, and so that, that's, that's, that is what it is. Okay, the next one, the scientific problems that, that could be in the Bible. There's um, stories in the Bible that just don't really make sense to us as 2011 Americans in a scientific worldview. For instance, um, one of these is the, the creation story uh, of, of like where God created things. And the, the, so he created the earth, or created the earth, a ball of water, then land is, on the wa- land is on the water, formed the land. And then there's the sky. And then there's this like layer of, of lights in the sky, the sun, the moon, the stars. Um, and then on top of that layer is this layer of water. That, and, that, and it's that water that came to the earth during the flood. And if you share this with anyone that's, that knows about the planets and the orbits or, you know, share this with a NASA person, they'll probably just laugh because they're like, wait a minute, you're saying that on the other side of the sun was this ball of water that came to the earth? That doesn't make sense. And you're kind of like, yeah, it, it doesn't. It kind of has some problems with that passage, scientifically speaking, from a 2011 perspective. Um, there's other kind of issues like that. Um, this one isn't as big of a deal. And, and, and by the way, we'll, we'll finish this and you'll be like, yeah, that's really not that big of a deal. But 
Um, it is what it is. And sometimes atheists will, will throw these ideas and things in our faces as Christians and say, look, your book is dumb. It doesn't make any sense. It's, you shouldn't be reading it. It's, it's not worthy uh, to be read because it's not scientifically correct. But in all that, you know, we could, we could turn around and say, this book wasn't written in a scientific worldview. We are placing those scientific things on top of um, our, our worldview. So anyways, Mark uh, 4.31 says that Jesus says the smallest seed of all the seeds is the mustard seed. And the mustard seed gets planted, and then it grows up, and it gets big. And, and so it is like faith. It's a small seed that grows up and gets big, right? Any, any problems with that? Well, the problem is, is that Jesus said that the mustard seed is the smallest of all seeds on the earth. And you could read it in Mark 4.31. And the, 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 sometimes English translations kind of word it differently, so it doesn't seem so emphatic. But the Greek is very emphatic. It says that Jesus said that the mustard seed is the smallest of all seeds. And if you're a botanist, or if you studied botany like I did in, in college, you will know that there's lots of other seeds that are smaller than the mustard seed. The mustard seed is pretty small, by the way. It's smaller than a poppy seed, if you know how big a poppy seed is. But there's smaller seeds. The orchid seed is less than half the size of a mustard seed, and you kind of need a microscope to see it. It's smaller than a grain of sand. Um, and yet, and so there's this error in there. But was, I mean, the, the, the response should be like, Jesus wasn't teaching a science lesson about plants. Jesus was teaching an analogy about faith, right? So, so don't leave here totally confused thinking, oh gosh, the Bible's this, this book that's not accurate scientifically. Well, it's not supposed to be a scientific book, is kind of my point. Um, one other one. Does anybody like math in here? <laughs> yeah, math. Um, there, there's this number called pi. Does anybody know pi? Not like apple pie, but this number pi. And some of you in here have probably memorized pi, this number, to like 10 decimal points. And you, you got in front of your calculus class and you said, pi is 3.1, uh, what is it? One five nine two, And you kept going for like 20 digits and everybody clapped and you got some sort of prize. Anybody? Any math nerds? Memorize pi to a couple digits. All right, anyways. Um, so pi isn't 3. It's 3.14592. Uh, it keeps going for quite a, quite a few decimals, actually. Um, we've, we've, I think we've uh, said that it goes to something like trillions of decimals. We found pi to, to be accurate, too. But anyways, so the Bible says uh, in 1 Kings 7.23, you can turn there if you want, Saul, uh, Solomon is making this um, palace, and he says that there's this big pool, like a, it calls it a sea, and he says that the, 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 the diameter of this pool, it's circular, the diameter of the pool is 10 cubits, um, but the circumference of the pool is 30 cubits. Anybody see the problem with that? If you know your math, if you know pi, pi was invented, this number, this idea, in like the 200s BC, but here Solomon is in the 900, 1000 BC, much before the, the number pi was found and invented. But the Bible has this, you know, mathematical error, supposedly, in it, that, that says um, that, that the, you know, if, so, uh, uh, math people follow me. So the, the diameter is, the circumference is supposed to be pi d, right? Pi times d. So the circumference of this particular round C that was in Solomon's temple should be 31.415, but the Bible just says it was 30. So there's a mathematical error here. Is anyone else with me? Do you see the, the math error? And so some of you math whiz, uh, whizzes may even know this guy. It has nothing to do with what we're talking about today, but I just found this very interesting. Uh, here's a guy named Cho Lu 
from China, and he has memorized, he's got the Guinness Book of World Records for memorizing the, the digits of pi. He, this is just insane, and you can look it up and fact check me on this, but he memorized the digits of pi, like 3.14159, whatever. He memorized it to 67,000 890 digits. It took him 24 hours and 4 minutes to quote that. And on the, the 67,891 digit, he said a 0 instead of a 5, so he made an error. But he was supposedly prepared to go to like 100,000 digits of pi. What have you been doing on your spare time? <laughs> Anyways, all right. Moving right along. Um, I'm realizing now that we're, we're coming closer to time ending, um, so we may or may not get to that discussion question. We might save it for next week. But anyways, so there's types of confusing passages, translational, scientific, and the next one is just difficult passages. The Bible isn't this book where we just open it up and it's just one inspirational saying after another. The Bible, we open it up and there's confusing, hard passages where God seems to do bad things to nice people. We, we read last January the story of Job, where God is at the center of, of Job's suffering, kind of the one that's kind of in charge, allowing it to happen. Um, Hosea 6.1, this other book of the Bible says, um, come let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces, but he will heal us. Who did the tearing? God. And it says, he has injured us, but he will bind up our wounds. Okay, he'll, he'll heal us, but who has injured us? Well, God has. The Bible is full of these, these stories, these narratives that are hard and difficult to understand. I was just reading First uh, Kings the other day, and it begins with a story of David. He's an old man. He can't keep warm when he's going to sleep. So instead of like making a fire or a fireplace in his room, they're like, I got a great idea. Let's get a girl, a young virgin, to sleep with this married guy to keep him warm. What a great idea, right? You're like, what? This is in the Bible? This is King David, like this man of faith? And then, like, talk about Jerry Springer. Um, uh, David dies, and then David's son, what's his name? Uh, Adonijah says, I want to marry that girl. Her name was Abishag the Shunammite. And so he wants to marry her. I mean, Jerry Springer, like, Jerry, Jerry. Um, and, and so, like, what a confusing story. And then Saul, Solomon, another one of David's sons, finds out that Adonijah wants to marry that girl. And so Solomon has Adonijah killed. For, like, what? This is in the Bible? This is the nice, pretty stories that we have in the Bible, these uplifting moments of devotional care that we read? It's like, what? That's a hard passage. The Bible has many of these stories or ideas where that, that just need to be um, talked out and, and thought about and, and read in their whole context. And so that's another type of difficult passage. Another one is uh, self-contradictions, this final um, type of uh, confusing passage. Um, and there are things where one passage says it happened like this, and another passage says actually it happened like this. And those two stories are contradictory. One of the famous ones could be Acts 9-7, if you want to write that down and look at it later, compared to Acts 22-9. And the, the Acts 9 is where Saul, it's the story of Saul's conversion, Saul who then becomes Paul. And so it's his conversion story where he uh, becomes a Christian and there's this voice from God that says, uh, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? You can read the story later. And, and, and there's a bunch of guys around him. And in Acts 9, 7, it says that the guys around him heard the voice of God. And then when Paul is retelling his story at the end of the book of Acts, Acts 22, 9, he says that the guys around him did not hear the voice of God. 
So it's like, wait, one passage is saying one thing, another passage is saying another thing. And I have this book. Uh, it's a pretty good book. I would recommend it. It's called uh, The Encyclopedia of Bible Difficulties. And if you get that book, you could read about all the hard passages. This one would, is in there. And they go on to say that, well, maybe um, in the Greek, the, the hearing has two different cases. In the Greek, there's genitive and accusative. Uh, we don't have time to talk about that exactly. But basically, um, the idea is that they did hear the voice, but they didn't understand the voice. And so both passages, there's really no contradiction there. Um, both times, the, the men heard the voice, but they didn't understand it. And so, like, like, we use the same thing in English. Like, are you hearing me? Yeah, you're hearing me, but you don't understand. So you could say, no, I'm not hearing you. It's like, no, you heard the voice, but you just didn't understand. So you said you didn't hear. So anyways, that's, that's an apparent contradiction that is somewhat kind of alleviated if you study it further. But then there's others that are contradictory and just seemingly contradictory without any answer. And that could be uh, this passage. You can turn to it in your own Bible. But 2 Kings 8.26, it's just random number that really doesn't have too much of a play for anything big and important. But Ahaziah was 22 years old when he became king. And if you read the similar passage in Chronicles 22.2, it says Ahaziah was 42 years old when he became king. Well, how old was he? It's the same guy, the same story. One says he was 22, one says he was 42. Well, it turns out that if you flip the page before, his dad who died, uh, Jehoram, was 32 years old when he, when he, uh, when he became king and reigned for Jerusalem uh, then he, for eight years, and he passed away. Um, and so he was, what, 32 plus 8 is 40. So how, so, and then he had Ahaziah. So wait, Ahaziah couldn't have been 42 years old. This is clearly an error. So Chronicles 22, 2 is wrong. And so sometimes if you go to that passage in your Bible, it'll probably have a note on it. It may say 22, but then in the Hebrew, it might have a note saying the Hebrew actually says 42, which would be an error because a son can't be older than their father, right? Simple health class stuff, right? Anyways, um, so this is seemingly you just look at it you say yeah here's a contradiction here's a passage that that doesn't really make sense it's contradictory and so um it just is what it is and and so um i I think i'm going to fast forward uh my notes real quick i had a discussion but we're not going to have time for that and then just get this this bigger idea that's up on the screen now that the bible is not written to us but for us, I wanted to kind of say that. And if you've never heard me say that, or if you've never heard this statement before, you might be thrown off by it. Like, whoa, what's, what does he mean by that? That the Bible's not written to us? Because maybe your youth pastor said that the Bible's just like a, a love letter from Jesus written straight to you. Did your youth pastor say that? Mine did. He's like, yeah, it's like Jesus is your boyfriend, and he's writing you a love letter. He's like, well, not really, because the, the Bible is many books, it's many pages, and the majority of the context is written to somebody else, not to you as a person living at New Life Church uh, 2011 in America, but to, like Paul writes, to the Corinthians. It's to them. And so it's for us, for today, if we study it and, and, and think about those things, but we have to take it into context that it's not written directly to us, but it is written for us. Um, skipping ahead just to this idea of this, I'm going to end right now with this idea of the, the whole sweep of Scripture um, and, and by the way, before I talk about the, this idea and, and close with it, I just want to reiterate that I've brought up a lot of questions this morning. We have not gotten to a lot of answers. We will get to some more answers and more in-depth study all this month as we study this topic. Today is simply the kind of the introduction to bring questions to the forefront. But I wanted to end with this point that, that we should read Scripture 
um, kind of the whole sweep of Scripture, that we should, when we sit down and read, it shouldn't just be one verse at a time and, and contemplating that one little verse, but, but more of a reading the context of, 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 the, of the thing, the passage that we're reading. I like this quote that I put on the back of your skillet, which is by N.T. Wright, a favorite theologian of mine. And he just says, read one of the epistles or the Gospels in one sitting. And I know that's very different than probably how most of us read the Bible normally. I mean, the idea of sitting down and reading all of John, that would take like an hour and a half, two hours, maybe more if you're, if you're a slower reader. But he says, do that in one setting because that's kind of how it's meant to be read. And he says, let it wash over you, then go back and study the details of the words. And so it's this kind of this encouragement from a theologian, and I, I want to encourage you with the same thing of, of reading the whole sweep of Scripture, reading not just little sections and chunks and, and like picking out the weeds, going back to this analogy, but, but taking a step back and, and looking at the flowers of the garden and, and the beauty of the truth and the narrative that's in the context of Scripture. It would be like going to a symphony if, if, if you've ever been to a symphony, you know that they're usually long. They're an hour or more long. They're maybe an hour with a little break and then another hour of, of music that, that a composer has put together. And it's supposed to take you on a musical journey. If you went to a symphony and got all dressed up and went to five minutes of that symphony and then were like, well, I'll just catch the rest of it tomorrow or I'll just keep coming back every week and just take, take little bits and pieces of the symphony people would be like, you're crazy. You're, you're missing out on this exploration of, of music and sitting there listening to this entire piece as it was intended to be listened to. And so I think in the same way, Scripture is meant to be read as, as a story, as a narrative, the, the whole context at a time. And so I'm going to be encouraging you with that idea and talking about it more this month, going back and answering some of the hard questions that, that we have as Christians about the Bible. So that's, that's what we're up against this month. Let's close in prayer. Father, we do thank you for the Bible, what it is for us, that, that these stories, these narratives of, of truth being told. God, I pray that you would um, encourage us with, your, with the word as we read it. God, allow it to wash over us, as this, this uh, theologian has said. Allow us to, to, to understand it. Allow us to, to understand and receive the truth that's in it. And so, God, we praise you. We love you this morning. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. All right, friends, go in peace. See you next week.